Friends, I'm excited to be here with you tonight to discuss this important topic. In 1835, a man visited a doctor in Florence, Italy. He was filled with anxiety and exhausted from a lack of sleep. He couldn't eat and avoided his friends. The doctor examined him and found that he was in perfect health, concluding that his patient needed simply to have a good time. The physician told him about a circus in town and its star performer, a clown named Grimaldi. Night after night, uh, he, this, this clown Grimaldi had people rolling in the aisles. You, you must see him, the doctor advised. Grimaldi is the funniest clown. He'll make you laugh and cure your sadness. No, replied the despairing man. He can't help me. You see, I am Grimaldi. About 50% of Americans either personally struggle with depression or have a close family member who does, according to the National Association of Mental Illness. And if you don't experience clinical depression, surely there have been times when you have felt melancholy, broken, sad, or hopeless. There have been times when you've faked a smile and behind it were racing thoughts of anxiety and dread. You see, the, the story of Grimaldi is not extraordinary. Many great leaders, celebrities, and preachers who we think were filled with joy actually struggled with anxiety and depression for most of their lives. Foremost, uh, the great British preacher, Charles Spurgeon, battled depression for most of his life, though at times most people uh, thought he was doing quite well. And when he even did speak about it, people would tell him, oh, it's, it's much milder than you make it out to be. To which he would respond, there are dungeons beneath the castles of despair. Our text today is written by someone in the dungeon under the castle of despair. Someone in the pit. And I, I truly believe each of us can glean from his song today. Would you open up to Psalm 42 with me? Psalm 42, and would you mind if I just pray one more time? Father, we thank you for this time that you have given us together today, and we pray that you might meet us in it. Lord, many of us have tears without knowing why. Some of us have tears, and we know exactly why they come. But Lord, we pray that, that tonight, as we sit under your word, we might feel your hand wipe away those tears. Your word says that you collect our tears in your bottle and you count our tossings in the night. Lord, today help us to feel as though you are watching us, for that is truth. Be with us now, Lord, as we read your word. Comfort us through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My, my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, 
For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where's your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. We should probably start before hopping into the text to really uh, name the enemy that put this man in this pit of despair. I think that's an important thing to do. We, We need to note that even before these enemies taunt him, he's in the pit. He's in depression. Nobody says to somebody, nobody taunts someone, where is your God when all of life is going well? Already he's He's downcast. Already he's melancholy. Already he's experiencing brokenness. And friends, you may be in a state of despair today for a variety of reasons. A variety of adversaries may have put you in that pit. You've likely heard before that our most common adversaries in the Christian life are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I think that happens to be the case even here in our text and when it comes to depression. Listen, If you're depressed, it may be the world. The stresses of work, family, relationships may weigh you down to a point of depression. Some of those relationships may not be ones that you want. They may be hurtful relationships like our our psalmist experiences with taunting. If you're depressed, it may be the devil. Listen, friends, I know that's something that we tend to push aside in our culture, but there is a spiritual war going on all around us. And it may be that you are experiencing an element of demonic oppression. Friends, if you're depressed, it may be your flesh. It, it may be biological. Friends, we recognize that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. We should not live in a world with cancer. We should not be living in a world with ALS, but we do because our bodies were touched by the fall, because creation groans to be set free from its bondage to decay, and that includes the biology of our brains. Charles Spurgeon, the man I mentioned, who he himself struggled with depression, put it this way. He said, quite involuntarily, unhappiness of mind, depression of spirit, and sorrow of heart will come upon you. You may be without any real reason for grief and yet may become amongst the most unhappy of men because for the time your body has conquered your soul. Whatever that enemy is, it's important to identify it because this will shape how it is that we respond to it from the pit of despair. I I wonder if anyone here tonight identifies with our psalmist. His tears have been his food day and night. Now that's poetic, yes, but it's also vulnerable and confessional. He can't eat. All he can do is cry. 
this, is, this is truly a broken man. I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrased it, saying, I'm on a diet of tears. Tears for breakfast, tears for supper. <laughs> if you haven't been there, you've never experienced this. Please know, if you have much more time on this earth, you will likely be where he is at some point. Hopefully not for long. He's cast down. Look at verse 7 with me where he calls out to God. Uh, He calls out to God saying, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He's saying, listen, Lord, I know you're the one who controls the winds and the seas, and it feels like you're throwing them all at me. He's overwhelmed. Nevertheless, hear me, he is not paralyzed. In the midst of his depression, he does not sit, he does not wait, no, he sings. Friends, do you see that? If you don't see it, you're missing the biggest thing. This is a song. In the midst of depression, he does not feel alone. He knows that God hears him, and so he sings. So friends, the answer to our question, and this is what we're going to talk about tonight, the answer to the question of our title tonight, what to do in the pit of despair, hear me, friends, I have been there. Sing. We, we need to sing. And I want us to look at four songs tonight from the pit of despair. Here's the first song. It's the song of questioning. The psalmist cries out in verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why? Do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Friends, take this away. It's okay to ask God why. Even Jesus does this as he quotes Psalm 22 as he's hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, Jesus doesn't do that because he's wondering what's going on. He's not hanging on the cross saying, wait, what, God, where did you go? No, Jesus does that because it's a proclamation that things are not the way they're supposed to be. He knows that, Jesus, he knows that God can handle his questions just as the psalmist does. As he says in verse 9, I say to God, not just my God, my God, my rock. My questions aren't going to upset him. My questions aren't going to move him. My questions aren't going to unsettle him. He can handle them. So... Friends, we give a lot of bad advice. Stop saying to hurting people, don't ask God why. Instead, ask God what. What does he want to teach you? No, that that goes against God's prayer book. He's given to us. See, it's okay to ask, what do you want to teach me? But it's equally, if not more important, no, it's, it's actually most holy to ask why. Why are things not the way they're supposed to be? Why do I not feel your presence? You see, when we we ask why, what we're doing is we're proclaiming the brokenness of this world and the belief that God did not intend it to be this way. And when we don't ask why, what we're doing is we're telling our children, our neighbors, our friends and family that brokenness should be expected, that it's a, a natural part of life. But hear me. Brokenness is not natural. When we don't feel joy, 
when we see disaster, when evil succeeds, this is not natural. This is humanity's cause. Sin broke the world. And when you ask why, you remind yourself and others that God created something so much better. He had a much better and more beautiful plan. So please, let's stop telling people to to just feel better. That people have it worse elsewhere. Let's stop taking verses out of context and let's let people know that it's okay to not be okay. And it's not just okay, it's actually holy to recognize that something is wrong with this world. So don't man up. Look up. Don't cheer up. Call out and complain to God because he can handle it and he wants you to. That's a song we should be singing in the pit, a song of questioning. There's a second song here. It's a song of soliloquy. And I know what some of you are wondering. You're saying soliloquy. That is a really weird word and I don't know what it means. But I promise you do. Uh, Many of us have heard soliloquies in in different forms of our life, different areas of our life. I was trying to come up with a better word. Couldn't come up with one. I think this is the best of it. Uh, A common soliloquy you all know. You either heard it from Hamlet or Bugs Bunny. To be or? That is the question. We've heard it in Les Mis from Jean Valjean. What have I done? Sweet Jesus, what have I done? Become a thief in the night. Become a dog on the run. You likely recite soliloquies to yourself every single day. I do in the morning. Come on, get out of bed. You just got to do it. Get up. You're watching the fifth YouTube video in a row, and you're saying, no, come on, we got to get back to work. Got to get back to work. We, we do this. And the Psalms actually tell us that this is a good thing to do. Notice verses 5 and 11. You can look at either one. It says the exact same thing. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You see, the, the truth is the philosopher Aristotle was wrong when he said our minds were a blank slate tablet. They're not. The virtues and morals of our minds are, are not neutral. They're marred by sin. And so we, we speak to ourselves in negative, defeating ways or prideful ways that will lead to our defeat. You see, our, our minds need to be guarded. This is the advice that Solomon gives in Proverbs 4.23. He says, listen, guard your hearts with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Friends, we need to actively retune our minds. We need to speak to our souls and teach our souls. Friends, do you realize that throughout most of the day, you allow your soul to speak to you when you should be speaking to it? Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor in England, said, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody's talking. Who is it? Yourself is talking to you. So instead, in the morning, begin self. Listen for a moment. I will speak to you. This is what the psalmist does throughout the song. He speaks to himself, and this is what what we should be doing. And I imagine some of you are wondering, well, what would I say to myself? Truth. We preach truth to ourselves. 
You may feel, as the writer of Psalm 88 does, that darkness is your only companion, that you've been abandoned by all others. But you must preach to yourself the loving father of verse 8 here in our song, who commands his steadfast love and song is over us in the night. Friends, isn't that lovely? That the psalmist can say that at night the Lord's song is with him? You see, it's not only true of him. Uh, the prophet Zephaniah says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Oh, friends, our God sings over us. And I, I'll be honest, I never understood this part of Psalm 42 until I had my little daughter, Cece. Shortly after she was born, I, I wrote a little song for her. Uh, and as we were trying to sleep train her, she was actually really struggling to, to stay asleep. And so we have one of those uh, cool new uh, baby monitors. And so we were able to put the song that I wrote for her, we recorded it, and we were able to put it on loop throughout the night. And every time she would wake up in the darkness and begin to cry, she would hear that song and be able to go back to sleep because her father's song was over her in the night. Cecilia Magdalena. She heard it over and over again, and she knew, oh, my God loves me. Friends, this is, this is what is ours in Christ. Our father's song is over us in the dark. It may be hard to hear, but we must preach to ourselves to remind us of its presence. God is singing over you. Oh, what joy does that bring in the bottom of the pit? No, I've not been abandoned. If I'm in Christ, I have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I have a father who, who sings my name throughout the night. He sings over me. I see Prince Hamlet's struggle in darkness when he cries out to be or not to be contemplating taking his own life should never be our soliloquy. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles. But no. As Christians, we know fortune is not against us. But rather, fortune is nothing. God's sovereign hand is over every sling and arrow. And it's not us that needs to take arms against the sea of troubles because our Lord quiets the sea and not only quiets them, but tramples them as he walks on them. Oh, friends, this is the truth. We need to preach to ourselves. Are you in the pit? Preach your God to yourself. Sing that soliloquy. My God is for me. He is greater than my troubles. In the pit, we sing the song of questioning. We sing the, the song of soliloquy. And we need to sing the song of thirsting. Our psalm begins, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so, my, so pants my soul for you, O God. Now, some of you maybe remember that hymn, right? As the deer panteth for the water. And there's something about that just feels so calm and gentle. And we put it in our minds that this is just such a peaceful psalm. But friends, no, it is not. Have you ever panted for something? Uh, this hit me this week as I was reading the psalm and just thinking through it. I'm like, oh, panting is not peaceful. This is a, 
this is a, a deer that's actually struggling, trying to find water. When, you, when you're panting, you're heaving. It's not a very peaceful picture. You see, the psalmist is, is searching for something he doesn't feel. We don't pant and thirst for something that we feel is right next to us. Maybe God feels far from you. Pant for him. Search for him. Cry for him. Do as the deer does and trot toward water. Don't be satisfied in your spiritual dehydration. As a kid, uh, I hated water. I didn't drink it, and because I, I never drank it, I didn't, realize, I didn't really notice myself becoming dehydrated, and so uh, a lot of kids made fun of me in class because I would regularly just pass out at random times. I know, just imagine little Eric in the middle of class. Uh, friends, if your depression, if your sadness is spiritual, run to water so that you may be hydrated. Open your Bibles. Cry out in prayer, especially when you don't feel like it. I remember my doctor uh, as a little kid, pediatrician, talking to me and saying, listen, when you wake up in the morning, you got to drink some water. And I remember regularly responding to him, saying, oh, but you know, if I drink water in the morning, that'll upset, it upsets my stomach. It doesn't feel good. And he'd always say, that's because you don't drink enough water. Friends, if you're dehydrated, you may not feel God's presence spiritually. And as you read and pray, you may feel as though you're getting nothing from it. But this just means that you need it more. Thirst for him. Pray for him. Pant for him. Chase him. In your panting, you, you may need counseling to get there. That's part of panting. In your thirsting, you, you may need medicine to help you find the water. But friends, don't quit panting. For him, Because if you truly want relief, you'll only find it in him. You see, that's what makes this so beautiful and so crucial for us, is that the psalmist is not mainly thirsting for relief from his threatening circumstances. He's not thirsting mainly for escape from his enemies or for their destruction. His primary thirst is for God himself. It's not that he doesn't want deliverance. It's not that he doesn't want salvation from his enemies. Rather, his deliverance, his salvation is so tied up in God that when he speaks to himself about God, he says, my God and my salvation. At the end of verse 2, the psalmist asks, when shall I come and appear before God? Now there's some debate as to how to best translate that verse. Some say it might be better translated, when shall I see the face of God? The psalmist longs to, to see God face to face, to be able to drink in his presence. When will I appear before him? Remember, not even Moses could handle seeing the face of God. Moses could not appear before God. He had to be put in the, the cleft of the rock and see the afterglow of God's presence. But our psalmist longs to stand before him, to see his face, and asks, when? The answer comes from Jesus. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, he says in John 14. And Paul corroborates 
saying that when we are saved, that's you and me if you place your trust in Christ. We see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God in 2 Corinthians 4. If you're cast down, if you're feeling broken, if you're longing and thirsting for something glorious to lift you from the pit of despair, thirst for God and call out in your longing. He is our salvation. Jesus is our relief. Here's the last song from the pit. We had a song of questioning, a song of soliloquy, a song of thirsting, and there's a song of hoping. This may be the hardest song for us sometimes. The psalmist preaches to himself. Both times he ends his soliloquy saying, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This appears in the middle of the psalm and then as the closing words of the psalm. Now, now please look at verse 5 carefully. Please bring your, bring your eyes down, look at the text, examine it. Notice what the text does not say. He does not say, I am depressed, but I hope in God and I'm praising him anyway. He does not say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a good thing to say, but that's not what he says. Friends, he does not praise God. Now I know that's scary for most of us. We often feel that that God would prefer that we fake it till we make it, right? That we pretend to praise. But this psalm gives us permission that we don't need to do that. He puts this psalm, God puts this psalm in his worship book for Israel because he would rather them sing of hope than pretend to praise. Notice, the psalmist says, I hope that I will praise again. Now, I'm not talking about hope like you hope for a job promotion or your kid hopes for a special gift for Christmas. No, that's not really hope. That's desire. Hope in the Bible is synonymous with expectation. He hopes in the day he will praise God again when he will lead the people in singing again. And by hoping, he means he looks forward to when it will actually happen. You see, hope in Scripture is anchored in the future, but it's based in the past. The psalmist remembers, and friends, maybe this is something we need to do. Remember God's faithfulness. Look at verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. He remembers leading the people in song, being the life of the party, and he hopes, that is, he expects that God will restore that. You see, hope is hope for relief. Hope is not satisfaction with the way things are. Hope is not getting used to this dark cloud that sits over you. No, hope is the willingness to raise your expectations of what peace and joy in God's presence will be. And thirsting for it. Asking God why you don't have it now. Reminding yourself and preaching to yourself that you will have it and it will be yours. That is hope. Friends, sing the song of hope. Perhaps your darkness is blinding. In the dark, hope may just feel foolish 
as the world, the flesh, and the devil taunt you, saying, where is your God? You may wonder what, what hope can even do. In the classic book, uh, Don Quixote by Miguel Cervantes, the nobleman Alonso loses his mind and becomes a knight errant in order to restore chivalry to all of Spain. Throughout the book, he's mocked and made fun of for believing that a simple farmer uh, was his noble squire and renames a local farm girl Dulcinea, giving her the rank of princess. Now, throughout the book, he's mocked regularly for this. But the greatest response I believe he gives is when he calls out, asking, am I to surrender hope? This may be madness. Too much sanity may be madness. And maddest of all is to see life as it is and not as it ought to be. Friends, in your depression, you might feel hopeless. You may be discouraged. You may feel it would be foolish to see life as it is, to see life as it ought to be rather than at the brokenness it is. When hope is a struggle, do not believe the lie that hope is lost, that God has abandoned you. Oh, this is such a struggle for people who experience depression and anxiety. Surely my salvation isn't real. Surely uh, God is not holding on to me because I can't feel him. And why not go to the words of Charles Spurgeon here? As he said, depression of spirit is no index of declining grace. It is Christ and not the absence of depression that saves us. Though our bodily gloom allows us no feeling of his tender touch, he holds on to us still. Our feelings of him do not save us. He does. So friends, as you're in the pit of despair, ask God why. Remind yourself who God is. Thirst for him and hope in him. A few years ago, my wife was uh, really into the show The West Wing. Maybe some of you have seen that. And, and one day I, I heard this story from Leo McGarry, the, the chief of staff for the president in this show. He says, a man is walking down the street one day when he falls into a hole. He cries out for help from everyone who passes by. And the first man to pass by is a rich man. He decides that he's rich and so because of his wealth, he can help this man. He walks over to the hole, pulls out a $50 bill, throws it down, and shouts, buy yourself a ladder. Well, obviously, that doesn't get the man out of the hole. The second person to pass by is a religious man. He decides that he's righteous, and because of that, he can help this man. So he walks over to the hole, says a prayer for the man, and says, see you in church on Sunday. Well, that also doesn't get the man out of the hole. Finally, a friend walks by. And the man cries out, hey, Joe, it's, it's me. Can you, can you come down here and help me out? Oh, sorry, can you help me out? And the friend, what he does is he jumps in the hole. Now our guy in the hole, as he's shouting up to his friend, says, well, are you stupid? Now we're both down here now that you jumped down. The friend says, yeah, but I've been down here before, and I know the way out. Friends, Christ has been in this hole, and he is the way out. He died on the cross, calling out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He thirsted for his father's will and not his own. And he hoped 
in his Father for resurrection and life, which he received and now offers to us. Are you in the pit of despair? Do you have a friend who's in the pit of despair? Offer him the way out. It's Jesus and him alone. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, there is so much loss in this world, so much that aches and groans and shivers wanting dimension, wanting redemption. So much in our world seems dislocated, upended, desecrated, unhinged, even in our own hearts. And yet, Lord, there's somewhere in our tears still hope. We feel in this darkness a tiny flame when we are told that Jesus wept. You wept, Lord. You know darkness. You know brokenness. You have gone before us. So teach us, Lord, to weep like you, to love like you, to thirst for you, to hope like you and in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.